According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn the word of God this morning as we get started to Matthew. We have been dealing with the temptation in the wilderness. And actually, rather than Matthew, go ahead and turn to uh, John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We did not have a class last week, so we're now two weeks separated from our most recent class. But we will move on and gain some new material this morning. And get our first look at the first disciples. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that we are filled with the Spirit and equipped to handle spiritual truth. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the opportunity we have this morning to assemble together and receive instruction. We ask for distractions to be set aside and concentration upon the material at hand, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. One uh, note here before we do get started, I got an email from Pastor Drew Freeman in Oklahoma City, uh, Faith Bible Church of Oklahoma is the home church for uh, uh, Village Ministries, and uh, we've been praying for a lot of the VMI missionaries in uh, Sri Lanka and India especially. Um, don't have any word on India yet, but with respect to a Muslimani in uh, Sri Lanka, it says, uh, oh, another item for prayer, first of all, Tom Miller who was on the Nigeria Cameroon team that just returned, has contracted malaria. He's in a hospital in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. He was admitted with a 105.4 degree temperature. Please keep him in your prayers. So uh, pray for Tom Miller. Gary, you were thinking about going to Cameroon, weren't you on the... <laughs> All right. Well, watch out for malaria. Then um, Abe Masalamani in Sri Lanka was on one of the roads that was swept away by the tidal wave just 20 minutes before that road was washed out. Uh, Also, the pastor, so he's okay, the pastor and church members in, I think it's pronounced Gale, G-A-L-L-E, maybe it's Gaye or Gale, a coastal city there in Sri Lanka that has been pretty well devastated, but uh, the pastor and the church members there are okay. So that's answer to prayer. Abe is setting up a relief effort to be coordinated with the pastors he works with in Sri Lanka. Any contributions towards this can be sent to VMI and marked uh, Sri Lanka. Thank you for your prayers and support. So, anyway, Drew uh, Freeman and Bob Thompson will be keeping us up to date when they get more information. Still don't know about Philip uh, Solo, or Solo Philip. Which way is that? His One of those is his first name. <laughs> Solo Philip. Okay. Still haven't heard about Solo Philip and uh, the ministries there in India. But the neat thing about prayer is that when we don't know exactly what's going on, that's okay. Because God does know exactly what's going on. He knows better than we do. And we can uh, simply give him the desires of our heart. And he uh, He doesn't answer based on what we've asked for anyway. He answers based upon his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And that is, again, another item to uh, to celebrate and be thankful over. All right, we go to John chapter 1 this morning. John chapter 1. We're going to focus on verses 35 through the end of the chapter, down through verse 51. Before we begin, though, have we prayed already? Already did. Okay, super. <laughs> then I won't pray again. All right, got distracted by those missionary announcements. All right, you know, the Lord, uh, 
is so unlike Muhammad or Buddha or Joseph Smith or any of these other uh, people that started their own religion and, and the first order of business was to gather around themselves the most loyal followers they could, uh, the most loyal lieutenants they could find, men that would be willing to lie, cheat, steal, murder, do whatever was necessary to promote their quote-unquote ministry. And uh, it's remarkable how the Lord um, does not. Yes, he gathers disciples. Yes, there will be people that come to him. But very few that he would actually admit into a close intimacy and simply these 12 being selected for not only roles as disciples, but preparing them for roles as apostles is really quite limited. And we're going to see starting this morning with the gathering of these first disciples, and then on into some subsequent lessons, uh, times when the Lord would be very cautious about popularity, very cautious about these vast movements and things that our modern church would just not understand at all because we obviously follow the concept that bigger is always better and the more people coming, oh, praise the Lord, and more money coming in, well, that's just super. Uh, that's not necessarily the pattern that the Lord followed. And uh, we'll see some of these things, particularly as it touches upon John the Baptist and some of his disciples who are getting a little uh, selfish and a little uh, uh, bitter because uh, they were losing some folks and they were going over to this Jesus guy. And we're going to see in John chapter 3 that some of the, the most faithful disciples that had hung with John the Baptist uh, were starting to resent those that had turned traitor and left John the Baptist to go follow this Jesus guy, see. And it just blows my mind away that because I think all of them should have gone. <laughs> you know, I think that John the Baptist should have plunged to a ministry of zero. Who are these guys hanging on to the forerunner? When the uh, when the uh, when the Christ had been revealed, so we're going to talk about those things here as well. Let's get a look at it again the next day. Now there are a, there are a series of next days here throughout this passage, and uh, beginning in verse 19, this is the testimony of John, and uh, they had, in verse 24 they had been sent by the Pharisees. Uh, verse 28, we're just looking for time markers now. In verse 28, these things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Then the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, and then uh, verse 35 again, the next day. And sometimes people get confused over this because they think that this is presenting a day-by-day account, in which case there's no time for Jesus to go out into the wilderness for 40 days if all of a sudden this is the next day. See, But we want to recognize that the term the next day can be used with reference to the next day that John had a public ministry or the next day that John was forward in, a, in his role as, uh, as, uh, as a prophet, for example. We can take the next day that way, for example. This is the next day we've come together for teaching the Life of Christ class, even though it's been two weeks since the last time we've been together for the Life of Christ class. And so the term the next day can be utilized in such a fashion. We don't have any problem with that. As we set the context for this, point one, following the 40 days of temptation, Jesus returned to the area where John the baptizer was ministering. Following the 40 days of temptation, Jesus returned to the area where John the baptizer was ministering. Now he has a reason for this, and the reason for this is to pick up the first of his disciples 
He uh, traveled to John the Baptizer, first of all, to be publicly anointed, to be declared, to be announced to angels and to men. And uh, that having been accomplished at the baptism event, we studied that. He was uh, ordained, we would say in modern terms. He was uh, anointed, such as prophets, priests, and kings were anointed in the Old Testament. And so he is beginning his public ministry and then driven out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He has his trial by fire immediately upon entering into public ministry. Now, he returns to the baptizer for this short period of time. It will be over the period of uh, several days or possibly uh, a number of weeks. Uh, it's not clear in the uh, context of these first three chapters how much time takes place. We can estimate it was just a few weeks, but we don't suspect that it was very much longer than that at all when uh, Christ will then depart for the region of Galilee. Now... Um, so we're back into proximity with John the Baptist. And the purpose for this is to gather these first disciples, those who had been learning under the forerunner, those who had been anticipating the coming Christ. And you wonder, how many disciples did John have? You know, what kind of a ministry would, an, would a prophet like John the Baptist have? He would have clearly any number of students who were interested in Bible class, who wanted to uh, understand the, the signs of the times in which they were living. And however many it was, we know that there was quite a bit of appeal. As we glance back here in chapter 1, we realize that all of Jerusalem was going out there to be baptized. And the attraction there to uh, his ministry was something else. One moment. There we go. So, um, as we read here in verse 35, again, the next day John was standing with two of his disciples. However many he has, we don't know, but two of them are standing in close proximity. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? John's Gospel was written decades after the other three Gospels having been written and, and uh, being written to an audience that was primarily Greek-speaking or Roman, not necessarily Jewish, not necessarily Hebrew, not necessarily familiar with a lot of the Hebraic terms. And so we will find this quite commonly throughout the Gospel of John where Hebrew terms such as rabbi will be translated into the Greek equivalent such as didaskalos for teacher. We'll break that down for you as well. Likewise, in this passage, we have the term Messiah in verse 41 where, again, John gives us the translation for Christ. And then in verse 42, Cephas and John again uh, translates the Aramaic term to uh, to Peter. So we, we find some of these uh, glimpses here throughout this throughout this chapter. Under point two, I want to highlight something here very important. Jesus Christ will receive disciples according to the will of God the Father. Jesus Christ will receive disciples according to the will of God the Father. And I will give you for this not only the text that we're examining this morning here in John chapter 1, but also John 3.27, John 5.30. And to stop and consider that this is what we have already examined in the incident in the temple when he was 12 years old. See, when Jesus Christ was 12 years old, he was convicted that it was time for him to leave home. He was convicted that he must be about his father's business. 
And so he didn't tell Joseph and Mary what he was doing. He just stayed there in the temple and was ready to begin his ministry. Well, he was only about 18 years too early for that. (laughs) All right. Because we know from this chapter and elsewhere that he was about at least 30 years of age, probably upwards of uh, 34, 35 years of age, actually, when he was baptized by John the Baptizer, when he entered into public ministry. So um, does that mean that he was sinning back in the temple when he was 12 years old and said, I must be about my father's business? No. See, it does mean, though, that believers that are struggling to learn the will of God are going to uh, have to walk by faith and are going to have to rest in him and trust in his wisdom to reveal the timing of certain things. And in particular, if uh, believers have noticed that their uh, sin patterns uh, trend towards a a realm of impatience, shall we say? (laughs) And I, I just think this... Luke 2 passage is so amazing because here's Christ. He's 12 years old. Now, I mean, adolescent males are, are not famous for their for their patience. See, and uh, clearly he's he's he knows he's the son of God. He knows he has work to do and he's ready to, to get right on it. All right. Uh, and yet God, the father says no. And so we studied those things when we were in Luke 2. We studied what happens if two different believers have two different understandings of the will of God. How can that be? Well, quite simple. Because there are believers without omniscience that are, that are walking by faith and waiting to have that will revealed to them. And sometimes they'll, be, they'll have a little disagreement on uh, decisions or timing or things like that. So now when we get into the gathering of disciples, again, this becomes a matter to trust in the, in the Father. This becomes a matter for Jesus Christ to, uh, to take slowly, to take with, uh, with faith rest, to trust that the Holy Spirit is going to guide the right disciples, see, to trust that he is going to be given the students that he needs to have, including 11 faithful believers and one Traitor. See, now if Jesus Christ isn't careful, you better believe that the devil is going to give him 12 out of 12 devils, you know. And yet God the Father is faithful to craft the circumstances and the work assignments so that he gets 11 believers. Now, not just any believers, but the 11 that he has designed to be apostles once the church age begins. And one, one betrayer. So... We see these ones following here. Um, John is standing there with two of his disciples. Well, why those two? Why wasn't it two other ones? Why wasn't it these jerks we see over in chapter 3? No, it was these two. It was exactly these two. It was Andrew and John, and it had to be those two because those were the ones that the Father was working in to prepare them to serve his son. So as we glance around here... um, and I've given it away already, but you can peek down in the text. Andrew is named there in verse 40, and, and uh, the second one is left unnamed. And we'll handle that here in a moment. But turn over to chapter 3, and I'll point out here the, uh, <laughs> the mentality here, which is quite similar to the mentality of the prodigal's older brother. You know what I'm talking about? The mentality here of pride and selfishness and self-righteousness. And they love to debate, and they love to discuss, 
And they're real good about debating with the Jews about purification. And, and these guys, these disciples of John, are not only followers of John, but they're, they're living for this conflict. And they probably could debate these, uh, these uh, scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and folks. Um, but they clearly weren't humble. And I think that was the mark of distinction, too, between Andrew and John. And then in verse 26, they came to John, that's the baptizer, and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified. So they're not ignorant about what he said about Christ. They were there to listen to the testimony, which I find to be even more convicting. He who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Say, grumble, grumble, grumble. You know, how come our parking lot is getting more and more vacant and, and that parking lot across the street has more and more cars. In fact, they're overflowing. Um, why is it that uh, they're growing and we're shrinking? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with our ministry? Why isn't the Lord blessing us? See, and people today will look at numbers and look at uh, the, the checking account or look at the parking lot or look at seats in the pew and say, well, what's going on? See, and John, with such amazing humility, answers and says, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. Jesus Christ has the disciples he has because the Father gave them to him. And you can draw the thought out even further and say, I no longer have the disciples I no longer have because the Father has taken them away. See, and I think only men with the kind of humility that Job had and John the Baptist had could possibly say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. See, without that kind of humility, you would never bless the Lord for taking people out of your ministry <laughs> and say, oh my. Well, obviously, they have work assignment elsewhere. They were here to get trained and equipped. I trust that while they were here, I trained them and equipped them best as the Lord allowed me to do in the ministry here. And now they're moving on elsewhere. And the Lord's the head of the church, and that's his good pleasure. That's his work assignment, see. Or maybe he's dropping our numbers down because it's, uh, it, got, it was getting beyond where the, where the shepherd could shepherd. Or is getting beyond where the deacons could deacon. Or is getting beyond where the older believers could come alongside the younger believers, See, or we had uh, too many older believers and not enough y younger believers. And we had to take some believers with some doctrine elsewhere where they could disciple younger believers. See, <laughs> I've often pondered through the years when I stop and consider, say, over the last 20 years or so, um, All right. Well, I don't want to hold this. So let me just explain to people on tape. I'm going to change batteries and you'll have silence for about 10 seconds.
That one's a single click as well. Well, we'll do what we can with what we've got. If this one dies, I'll pull one of the wired mics over and we'll use that. We are in John chapter 3 and we're recognizing that the Lord gives and He's worthy to be praised when He gives and the Lord takes away and He's worthy to be praised when He takes away. See, and I don't want to <clears throat> grumble when Jesus Christ as the head of the church determines <clears throat> that He's going to take fellow believers and move them somewhere. Put them in another ministry. Take them where they can bear fruit. Take them where their gift will fit in. Where their gift will serve and where their gift will minister. Alright? And as I was saying a moment ago, um, <clears throat> Austin Bible Church has planted believers and churches all over this town and all over this state and different places around the country. And that's fine. I'm, th I'm just thankful that us uh, human beings don't have to try to figure all that out. That we can just walk by faith and trust that the head of the church is putting people where they need to be. <clears throat> no man can receive anything, it says. Verse 27, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. All right. Over in chapter 5, verse 30, in a much larger context for different things, but still the principle plays out. I can do nothing on my own initiative, Jesus Christ speaking. As I hear, I judge, my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So, Jesus Christ, who said, I can do nothing on my own initiative, he didn't wake up this morning and say, I'm going to start gathering disciples. It was not his initiative that this started to happen. But God the Father directed for this to happen, and Jesus Christ obeyed the will of the Father and accepted the disciples that the Father had blessed him with. Alright? So Jesus Christ will receive disciples according to the will of God the Father. We studied this also under the Life of David series when David was on the run from Saul. And the last thing David wanted to do was to start to gather men around himself. He was a fugitive, see. A lot easier to hide when you're by yourself. But these people kept coming to him. And the Lord kept giving him these people that needed teaching, that needed encouragement, that needed leadership. And the Father kept giving David these work assignments. And so we see the typology of David played out now. So Jesus Christ will receive disciples according to the will of God the Father. Subpoint A, they are given as a gift from God the Father. They are given as a gift from God the Father. John 17. Gary knew where I was going with this. He's been reading Marcus Rainsford. Wrote an amazing work on John 17. The Lord prays for his own. All right, John 17. They are given as a gift from God the Father. <clears throat> Pastors need to be very careful that they don't... Uh... <laughs> the book of James warns against favoritism. Other passages warn about pastors who, who uh, fawn all over the rich guy and neglect the poor guy, for example. Or they start to pay attention over certain believers because they, uh, you know, for whatever selfish motivation might be there. 
And there is no distinction among the sheep. Every sheep given is a sheep that is a gift from God the Father. And every sheep given is a talent that has been bestowed and entrusted. And what are you going to do with the talents that God has blessed you with? See, and that includes every single church member, every single disciple, every single blessing for parents, every single child that the Father has blessed you with, that is a grace gift, that is a provision. We want to stay faithful, see. And uh, over the years, different believers have said, you know, well, Pastor, uh, <clears throat> sure appreciate your putting up with, with uh, me. I'm sure I'm the, the biggest knucklehead in your flock. And, and say, no, no, just <laughs> take, a, take a ticket and stand in line. You're about the ninth person to say that this week, so there's you know about eight others besides you, and and the the true reality is is that you've been putting up with this guy for all this period of time, and the pastor's the biggest knucklehead out there. So that's how these things work. John 17 though, when he says, "Now Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me." See, these were a gift from God the Father. They were a work assignment from God the Father. And now Jesus Christ could grumble and say, why did you send me Simon the Zealot? <laughs> this guy is a terrorist. This guy is a, a guerrilla warfare freedom fighter. The Zealots were, we'd, today we'd call them terrorists. They, they, would, they were waging a guerrilla warfare against the Roman government. Uh, amazing how he was paired up with Matthew, the tax collector, because Matthew was a collaborator with the Roman government. Matthew was a Jew that was collecting taxes for Rome. And so he was collaborating with the Romans while Simon the Zealot was engaged in guerrilla warfare terrorism against the Roman government. And here's Matthew and Simon, and they're paired up among the twelve when they were sent out two by two and so forth. Amazing, but the Lord could grumble. Why are you giving me this zealot? Why are you giving me these stupid fishermen? You know, Father, why did you give me Peter? See, and all the rest of it. And certainly, why did you give me Judas Iscariot? All right. But they were given from the Father for His purpose as a gift to the Son. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the cosmos. They were yours. And you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 9, I ask on their behalf. See, this is his, this is the true Lord's Prayer, not the other one that sometimes gets labeled the Lord's Prayer. This is, he's anticipating the cross. He's anticipating his departure. And he is now committing these disciples into the Father's safekeeping for their ministry after he's gone. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the cosmos, but, uh, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Ezekiel says, all souls are mine. And so all souls belong to God the Father. But these are the ones, these believers are the ones that he has given to Christ to be his disciples. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the cosmos, and yet they themselves are in the cosmos. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. He was given 11 believers, and he was given one unbeliever, and he knew it. And he knew 
that he had to accept that son of perdition as a disciple. And he came to love that disciple. He called him friend, which blows the socks off sometimes to stop and consider. So point B, I believe they were also prophetically revealed. They were a gift from the Father and prophetically revealed. John 1, 48. And we're going to compare it to a couple of Old Testament passages. I think sometimes we lose sight of Jesus Christ as a prophet, although he prophesied of many things. Prophecies that were fulfilled in his lifetime, prophecies that are yet waiting second advent fulfillment. Just like most of the other Old Testament prophets, they had near and far fulfillments in their prophetic messages. He prophesied of his death, burial, resurrection, but he also prophesied of his second advent return, conquest, and reign. He functioned as an Old Testament prophet. And we get a glimpse of this here in John 1 and verse 48, which we'll cover uh, here shortly when we get down to Nathaniel. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And that's enough to convince Nathanael. Now, because Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. We're going to talk about that here shortly. In fact, that's going to conclude this section here as we deal with Philip and Nathanael at the end of the chapter. But the phrase, I saw you, all right, Quite often, uh, pastors or commentators, scholars and so forth will assign that to omniscience or to, to deity, to, to, you know, before the world was and, and so forth. But it's uh, much more consistent to think of this in terms of a prophetic ministry because Jesus Christ does not ever exercise deity in his earthly ministry. He laid aside his privileges. He laid aside his privileges. If he occasionally just, you know, started turning on the uh, the omnipresence button or turning off you know turning up the omniscience dial then he's not being tempted as as you and I are and scripture says he was tempted even as we are and yet without sin so no deity can be exercised in his earthly ministry and that's not what this passage is dealing with it's much more natural to view this as consistent with say old testament prophetic ministry so let's take some time now to go back to 1 Samuel and this uh, I know we touched on when we were dealing with life of David. But that's been a couple of years now, and you might have slept since then and might not be uh, thinking about what was taught. First uh, Samuel chapter 9, just to get a sense for a day in the life of a prophet. You know, let's put ourselves back now 3,000 years and, and, uh, or more, and, and let's imagine the life of an Old Testament prophet, the life of a believer in an age when almost nobody has the Holy Spirit, except for you, and maybe a fellow prophet here or there, or maybe a high priest somewhere, but very few people have the Holy Spirit in, in this dispensation. And uh, especially when you're talking about Samuel, and uh, most of his generation was as reversionistic as you could ask about. Now, here in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 15. Now, a day before Saul's coming. Remember, Saul's out there. I won't read this whole chapter, but Saul is a son of Kish. He's in the tribe of Benjamin. And, and uh, his father has some donkeys that get lost. All right? And so these donkeys are out there somewhere, and they're lost. And so Kish sends Saul and the servant out there to find these donkeys. All right? 
thinks, well, what a, what a stupid thing to happen. <laughs> what a mundane task. Well, you know, God the Father is working in our day-to-day circumstances. And if it's something as simple as a donkey getting lost or, uh, you know, a, a battery dying in a microphone or a truck being broken into, I mean, these are just day-to-day circumstances and details of life. But God's sovereignty covers all of these details. And he has a purpose for every single one of them. So we got these lost donkeys. And uh, Saul's out there looking for him. And that's going to be the opportunity that God uses. Now, he has a prophet on hand named Samuel. And Samuel gets a briefing on this the day before. So verse 15, Now a day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel, saying, About this time tomorrow. All right, so... Saul's just minding, uh, Samuel's just minding his own business. Maybe he's eating breakfast or drinking coffee or, or uh, reading the Bible or whatever, praying. And it happens to be a certain time of the day. And at that very moment, the father comes to him and says, about this time tomorrow. Because that's the hour, the next day, that he's going to come across Saul. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. And he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. Alright? So he gets a briefing. You know, I'd be like, um, all the years that I had in law enforcement, you would start your shift, you would start with a briefing. And we'd come on shift, we'd come on duty, we'd be gathered around, the sergeant would get up there, or whoever was giving the briefing, and he'd lay out what we could expect for this shift, for this day. He could lay out uh, reports from last night's shift, uh, reports on any trouble areas or problems, things to look out for, um, anything that, uh, you know, uh, in terms of homeland security or something similar like that going on, you know, be on the lookout for such and such, and different things. we get a briefing on what to expect for the day, okay? And, uh, of course, none of our sergeants were prophetic, so <laughs> you can't prophesy what's going to happen. They can't say, oh, by the way, at 4.45 this afternoon, uh, inmate so-and-so is going to break a window and try to escape. You know, that'd be great if you could have a prophet for a sergeant, so, you know, at 4.44, you go hang out by the window over there, and <laughs> inmate busts out, and you're standing there waiting for him. All right? Well, Here's a prophetic briefing going on. And this is, uh, I, I don't take this in any way as being unusual. Samuel was not shocked by any of this. Samuel takes this in stride as if this is just the way things work. He's accustomed to this. He's accustomed to the Lord showing up. Ezekiel was the same way. The Lord would show up, give him a message and say, this is what you're going to do. And Ezekiel said, all right. And he went and did it. So, uh, verse 17, when Samuel saw Saul... The Lord said to him, Behold, the man of whom I spoke to you. See, just in case. <laughs> he gave him the briefing yesterday and said, About this time tomorrow, this guy's going to come to you, right? And so the next day, when Saul comes, the Lord speaks up again and says, That's him. All right? See, points him out. That's him. That's the one I was talking about. And Samuel's like, Okay, Lord, all right, I figured it out already. I kind of figured that was him. You know, this guy is tall, he's handsome, he's got all these, you know, bright white teeth and big, big chest, and he's walking around, he's looking for these uh, donkeys. Very handsome man, mighty man of valor, and all the description of him. He's taller by a head than any other man here in Israel. And uh, not like he could have missed him. But just, but see, the Lord's leaving nothing to chance here. He says, that's him. The blessings of divine guidance. Now, we don't have such prophetic word today. But you and I can be just as certain in terms of divine guidance. When he makes his will known, 
he is just as, as blunt about it as he is here, where he says, this is it. Don't miss, this is, this is it. This is what I want you to do. This is your open door, see? Behold, the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, please, tell me where the seer's house is. <laughs> you know, a little irony at work, a little humor here. And Samuel answered Saul says, well, that's me. <laughs> I'm the seer. I've been here waiting for you. All right. You know, if you're a true prophet, I'd be surprised if he wasn't expecting me. Right? See? I was invited to a lunch a couple years back now in this church over here on Burnett Road. And this is not to mock them or anything. It's just to illustrate the point. <clears throat> they have a sign out front. They advertise. They have a prophetic service every Friday night. All right. And they have an apostle quote-unquote, he calls himself an apostle, that heads up that church. They've got prophets and prophetesses that head up that church. And they invited me to this luncheon, and I wasn't going to go, but the material they were going to present there, I had an interest in. It was back when the Jesus video was being mailed to every mailbox in the state of Texas. And so I wanted to get information on that. And so even though I was invited by these prophets, quote-unquote prophets, uh, I, I was interested in hearing what the video thing was about, so I, I went, see, and I go in there, or, well, they called me the day before, and they wanted, because I had an RSVP, I just planned on showing up. So they called me the day before, and they asked, are you going to be at this luncheon tomorrow? <laughs> now, I got this naughty little part in my mind, talking to them on the phone, saying, well, you're the prophet, you tell me. <laughs> Am I going to be there tomorrow, you know? But I didn't. I thought, well, okay, grace, I guess I should function in some kind of grace. And said, yes, I'll be there. And then I got there the next day. It showed up. It was 11 o'clock. I was there right at 11 o'clock. Walked in there. And they had little name tags done and little you know things you pin on your shirt. And I walked in there. And the lady shook my hand and introduced herself. And uh, there was the temptation again. Because she said, and what's your name? <clears throat> well, you're the prophetess. You tell me. <laughs> See, but that's only... My little orneriness, carnality perhaps. But you see the point I'm trying to make that this was typical for a prophet. Uh, Samuel had this briefing. Saul shows up, says, I'm looking for the seer. Nope, that's me. I've been waiting for you. Here we go. Okay. Jesus Christ, likewise, is an Old Testament prophet. Jesus Christ has these disciples now that are starting to be sent to him from God the Father. And he, he flat out tells Nathaniel in uh, John chapter 1, that he had been given a vision concerning him. See, before, while you were under the fig tree, I saw you. God the Father made very clear that who certain of these disciples were going to be and that this Nathaniel character was going to be sitting under this fig tree and lo and behold, Jesus gets there and there he is. All right? So he knows this is one of the disciples I'm supposed to be receiving from the Father. Over in chapter 10, also here in 1 Samuel. Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him, and said, Has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? When you go for me today... Now here's Samuel giving Saul a briefing. When you go for me today, then you will find two men close to Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And uh, they will say to you, The donkeys which you went to look for have been found. 
Now, behold, your father has ceased to be concerned about the donkeys, and he's anxious for you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you will go on further from there, and you will come as far as the oak of Tabor, and there are three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying a jug of wine. This is pretty specific, isn't it? (laughs) All right. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from their hand. Afterward, you will come to the hill of God, where the Philistine garrison is. And it shall be, as soon as you have come there to the city, that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, a tambourine, flute, and a lyre before them. And they will be prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. There is a whole lot of teaching associated with that. Um... We'll let that go here for the moment. But just notice the briefing that Saul is uh, receiving here from Samuel. And it shall be when these signs come to you, do for yourself what the occasion requires, for God is with you. There is an amazing aspect to divine guidance. An amazing aspect to divine guidance that says, when you are filled with the Spirit, when you are humble to the Word of God, You don't need to have everything spelled out. Simply do what the occasion requires. You can trust that He will give you the wisdom. He will give you the discernment. You will make the right decision. You can relax about it. He doesn't have to hold your hand and tell you exactly what to do. You'll know what to do. Because you have the doctrine. You have the maturity. You have the wisdom. Do as the do for yourself what the occasion requires for God is with you. And with spiritual maturity will come more of a confidence in in the will of God and in a believer who is doing the will of God because he has the desires that he has from the Father. And so it happened and it's amazing as uh, step by step all these things began to happen. Verse 9 says, It happened when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God changed his heart, and all those signs came about on that day. He changed his heart. He became a new man. Now, Saul was already a believer prior to that. This gets into some things here that are beyond what we're going to tackle this morning. Saul, This is not Saul's conversion. I've heard some people say, well, this is when Saul got saved. See, now, Saul was already saved prior to this. But this is an aspect of his being ushered into his ministry as an anointed servant, a spirit-filled anointed servant, and uh, the transformation that comes apart there when a believer knows that he must be about his father's business. It's a transforming event in the life of a believer. All right, so all of that then is to indicate that Jesus Christ received disciples according to the will of God the Father. They are given as a gift from the Father, and they are prophetically revealed to him. Point three, returning back now to John 1. John's first two disciples will come to him from John's ministry. Jesus' first two disciples will come to him from John's ministry. John 1, 35. His first two disciples will come to him from John's ministry. I've sometimes uh, agonized over this and prayed about it and wondered why. Why, um, why haven't led more people to Christ? Why, um, for example, why 
hasn't the Lord blessed us with more evangelism? See, the ministry in general or me personally. Why have we not led more people to Christ? Why um, is it that the vast majority of believers at Austin Bible Church came from other ministries and didn't actually just get saved out of the cosmos and ushered into Austin Bible Church via evangelism? See, and uh, well, doesn't always work that way. And it didn't work that way for Jesus Christ either. And uh, there's some, of course, that are converted and saved and, and uh, believe in him and, uh, and enter into his ministry at that point of time. But then there's others that have been in prior ministries. And uh, that's something to be expected if you're just starting your ministry, such as Jesus is here. And uh, particularly in this instance where John the Baptist, his whole goal was to introduce the Christ and lead people to Christ. In reality, once that's done, his his job is complete, and the Lord and the Father will very soon be taking John home. But his first two disciples will come to him from John's ministry, as we see here. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked. So he wasn't necessarily coming to him, but he was passing by. He was in the area, and he said, "Behold, the Lamb of God." And he's departing from that region. And so the disciples have to chase after him. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following. See, so he wasn't necessarily coming to the baptizer, and they weren't ministering together, but they were near enough to observe. See, you know, there he goes. And uh, they followed after him. Subpoint A, Andrew is specifically named. Andrew is specifically named. That's verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, is specifically named. The name Andreas in the Greek, A-N-D-R-E-A-S, number 406. Names are a fun thing to study in Hebrew, Greek, English, what have you, because so often they're not translated, they're just transliterated, and they're brought across letter for letter or, or close to it. In, in Greek, Andrew is spelled Andreas, A-N-D-R-E-A-S. It's an adjective meaning manly, and aner is a man, A-N-E-R is a man. Uh, andros in the genitive, aner in the nominative, aner is a man, not in humanity, like anthropos refers to man in humanity, but aner refers to the male gender, different from the, the gune, for example, uh, which is the, the female gender. So uh, if you have polygamy, that's a man with many wives. If you have androgyny, androgyny that's a woman with many husbands. Okay, The word aner, meaning a man, and so andreas means manly. Don't want to go too far with that or <laughs> try to speculate why he was given that name. In a lot of cases, boys are given names that are the wishful thinking of their fathers. <laughs> All right. It is remarkable, though, that he has a Greek name that does not appear to be uh, does not appear to be have a Hebrew original. This is unusual among the disciples. We know he was Jewish. We know he was Simon Peter's brother. We know that he was uh, uh, Jewish a Hebrew male, and yet whatever his Hebrew name might have been, we are not informed. He does have this Greek name, and and uh, 
may have been uh, rather good for the fishing business in their contacts with the uh, Romans or the Greeks or the other Gentiles with whom they had to do business. The other apostle, subpoint B, the other apostle is understood to be the apostle John, who remains anonymous throughout his gospel. He never refers to himself in this gospel, not by name. See, we're, we're reading this text and it's, it's rather awkward, but it's also rather obvious when the author says, uh, you know, two of his disciples were standing by. Two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. And, and, and the reader's going, well, who are these guys? You know? And then he says, one of the two was Andrew. And you're like, okay, well, who was the other one? <laughs> All right. And it's self-evident and obvious that the author is recording all these events because he was an eyewitness to all of them. He was there. All right? And he's leaving himself unnamed. Even in the, even in the circumstances where he is a part of the story, he will leave himself unnamed. He'll, he'll, be, he'll simply let it go as the, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved, for example. The disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining on his breast. Peter couldn't figure out, what, you know, what, what's he talking about? And so he asked the disciple whom Jesus loved, who was reclining upon his breast, and said, Lord, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, he leaves himself unnamed. Um, when he has to refer again to him and his brother, for example, who just saved the sons of Zebedee, for instance, like back in chapter 21. But the only, every, every time we have the name John in the Gospel of John, it's referencing the baptizer, and it is not referencing the apostle. All right. He's called the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's called the other disciple in chapter 20 when he and Peter are in a foot race to get to the tomb. It's, well, it's Peter and the other disciple who's left unnamed and so forth. So anyway, this is characteristic, understood to be the apostle John. In Greek, the name Ioannis means the grace of God or the gift of God. Ioannes. I-O-A-N-N-E-S. And we usually turn that first I into a Y when it begins a word. So instead of I-O, we transliter- transliterate it uh, Y-O-A-N-N-E-S. Ioannes, meaning the grace of God or the gift of God. It's not even a Greek name. It's simply a transliterated Hebrew name. It comes from the Hebrew Yohanan, Y-O-C-H-A-N-A-N meaning Jehovah has graced. I think you've had vocabulary on this already. When we dealt with Zebedee and Elizabeth, I'm sorry, with Zacharias and Elizabeth, giving him the name, giving the baptizer the name John. Uh, when we discussed the difference between, they wanted to name him Zacharias after his father. And Gabriel said, no, his name's going to be John. And the interesting aspect of being given the name Ioannis, as a, or Yohanan, as opposed to, any other name. All right. So Ioannis is not a Greek. It's not a Greek name. It's brought over into the Greek, but it comes from the Hebrew. Yohanan. A lot of the a lot of the the Hebrew names that begin with that J letter that begin with the J E or the Y E in the Hebrew uh, have taken the name of Jehovah and have attached it to a verb or attached it to an adjective. In this case, the verb is Hanan, and uh, to, to be gracious with, Je- with uh, Jehovah in front of that, the Lord is gracious, the Lord has graced. And that's 
what the name John is all about. Point four, the Lord questioned these two men as to their motivation. He asked them, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? In verse 38, the, uh, the two disciples heard him speak. They followed Jesus, and Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, what do you seek? What are you seeking? Because there will be literally thousands that will be seeking after Christ because he can feed them. He can heal their sicknesses. They want to make him king. There's going to be a vast swell of popularity here coming up. And unlike any other king the Romans ever had, any other Caesar the Romans ever had, or king that the Greeks ever had, or Persians, or Babylonians, or anybody... There have been some mighty kings in the history of the world up to this point, but no one who could actually multiply loaves and fishes. Nobody who could raise the dead. Nobody who could heal the sick. Here is uh, a king who can take care of them in ways that no other king has ever been able to do. And so there will be a tremendous popularity swell and a great movement to make him their king. And Jesus has to be very careful here. See, I think some of the, the big mega churches that go on and the big excitement about all the people coming in and all the crowds coming in and well, are they going in there for teaching or are they going in there to be a part of the, 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 the zeal, part of the process, part of the excitement, part of the crowd, see, and uh, just the sheer numbers of people going after it and everybody gets excited because of the numbers and well, God must be really working, see, is that so? What are you seeking? <laughs> that, that becomes then a convicting question in any ministry. What are you seeking? See, when people come in, well, what are they looking for? I've learned a lot of times that there's visitors that come in here, they don't have a clue what they're looking for. They have no idea what they're looking for. A lot, a lot of cases, though, they're dissatisfied with where they've been. They're hungry for teaching. They just don't know it because they never had it. They didn't realize what it was they because they never you know if you've never if you've never tasted something how do you know if you like it or not right they've never tasted verse by verse exegetical expository teaching they've never tasted line upon line precept upon precept they never tasted the whole counsel of God's word and they had no idea it was even there and they come in they visit they see man this is this is something they didn't know what they were looking for when they got here but they they knew what they, they found once they tasted it, see? And uh, it's, uh, it's amazing. And some folks have come in here, never heard of Baraka, never heard of theme, never heard of categorical teaching, never heard of any of that. But they're getting a taste for face-to-face teaching for the first time, and they're going, wow, I need this, see? So that question, what are you seeking, is really a loaded question, but it, it goes to the... To the issue here that Jesus Christ wanted disciples that were committed to teaching. They were committed to the will of God the Father. What are you seeking? They're not just here for the entertainment. They're not just here for the... He's going to get very convicting on these guys that, uh, you know, that they, uh, they went out there to serve John the Baptist and, and they got all excited there for a little while and then they followed Christ for a little while and they just wanted to go to the, the latest, greatest thing. And they get a little upset when these guys don't dance to their tune they say well we played a fiddle for you and you weren't dancing we played a funeral dirge and you wouldn't mourn see 
And uh, the whole crowd will just go after the latest and greatest thing. So this question really is rather loaded. Some point A, Jesus needed to be cautious regarding those who would attach themselves to him. Jesus needed to be cautious regarding those who would attach themselves to him. John 2, 23-25, every believer needs to be cautious. We're going to see in Corinthians, we're not to be unequally yoked. We better be careful that we don't attach ourselves to an unbeliever and that we don't allow unbelievers to attach themselves to us and we don't become entangled in things. See, in a marriage, married to an unbeliever, in a business partnership, partnered up with an unbeliever, or any other association where that entanglement will cause us to face conflicts and compromises and circumstances we really shouldn't have been in if we would not have been entangled in the first place. See, people will ask, well, you know, I can't, I can't marry an unbeliever, but is it okay to date an unbeliever? <laughs> well, what if I... They might change. I might lead them to Christ. You might. But do you have to date them to evangelize them? <laughs> See? Go ahead and evangelize them. Go ahead and give them the gospel, but don't be dating them. See? You can give the gospel to people you're not dating. See? Because all you're doing is being unequally yoked. You're forming attachments. And even worse, you're forming emotional attachments. Things that will lead to confusion. See? When you're not thinking clearly because emotions are now in the way. When you form when souls have been knit. See, because of that nearness, because of that intimacy, because you've you've opened your soul to a to a level of intimacy. All right, got to be cautious. Got to be cautious because that is so ensnaring. Even even when and we've talked recently in the doctrine of fornication and the different things there. Even when the 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 physical activity isn't happening. Say let's let's say it. It hasn't gone as far as, as, as sexual activity, but there's still, prior to that even, there's still, there are that, those layers of intimacy. There's moments where closeness has happened, where you've shared things and confided things and come to know the person. And what's happened is two souls have come into closer and closer proximity. You've got to be on guard. And Jesus was cautious. When we glance over into chapter 2, we see some of this. After the turning of the water to wine. And uh, when he was in Jerusalem at Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. So they get saved. And you think, okay, super, they're saved. He should now gather them to himself. And he says, wait a minute. Yes, they're believers. But they're also baby believers. They're immature believers. They have motivations and goals that are not consistent with the goals of God the Father. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. Now, what's wrong with them? They're saved. Verse 23 says they believed. And yet there was a layer of trust that Jesus Christ was not willing to draw them into. See, there was that layer of trust that he had to put some distance there and say, wait a minute. For he knew all men. Is that because he's using omniscience? No. 
because the father was blessing him prophetically to know which he should draw close and which he should hold off, walking harmlessly as a, as a uh, uh, wise as a serpent, yet harmless as a dove, see. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. See, God the Father let him look upon a man's heart with his prophetic gift, with his prophetic office. And he knew, he knew when the betrayer came to him what was going on. There was no surprise there. Likewise with this crowd that we're going to launch him forward and try to make him a king. He, he knew what, where they were headed and had to separate himself from that. They were believers, but he had to separate himself from what their motivation was. We have to be cautious. See, we uh, maintain membership, for example, in this local assembly. We don't let everybody become a member who necessarily wants to become a member. See, if they're not believers, first of all, they can't become a member. If there's other issues that would come up, we'd say, well, you know, you're welcome to come to Bible class. You're welcome to, we don't exclude you from any activity, any prayer meeting, any Bible class, communion, any of that. See, but we have to be protective. This guy comes in, tells me he's a prophet. You know, well, if you were really a prophet, you would know that I wouldn't let you become a member. <laughs> yeah, see if you can muster up a prophecy and figure out how long it's going to take me to throw you out of here. All right. See, got to be cautious. I am over time. Let's uh, point B. Jesus needed to be cautious regarding those who would. Oh, my. Okay, I had the same point listed twice. Um, that's not good. It's twice on the screen and it's twice on my paper. There was somewhere else I was going to go with this, and it wasn't in John chapter 2. It was going to be over in, I believe it was in John chapter 6, when they were going to rush off and make him king. All right, well, this is a good place to stop anyway, and I will repair the error in my notes and have this prepared for next week. Father, we do thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the example of Jesus Christ, and I pray we might live by what we've learned in that example of Jesus Christ. And Father... Uh, I thank you that he was wise as a serpent, yet harmless as a dove. I thank you that he showed wisdom in the caution that you would have for all of us to show. And Father, uh, in, the, in the realms of separation and defilement, we realize that the filthy garment will rub off on the clean and not the other way around. We realize that uh, proximity will, uh, will promote our defilement uh, much faster than our example will rub off on, on them. Father, we need to maintain that separation even as we maintain our faithful witness. And I just pray that you would open our eyes, the eyes of our understanding to these doctrines and these, and these principles, that we would uh, apply them properly in the work assignment that you have blessed us with. And I just, again, thank you for the truth of your word that transforms our thinking on a day-by-day -day basis. And we pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.